Great to be here this morning with all of you. Although I now live in Dallas, Texas, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And so I always love getting back to northeast part of our country. I call living in Dallas my sacrifice for Christ. And so I really love getting back to northeast part of the country. And it's such a light to be here with you. I so appreciate the awfully simple and to the point introduction the pastor gave me. When you travel as a speaker, you get every introduction under the sun. But they're not always good news. Some time ago, I speak up in Michigan for a week-long conference. And the pastor got up on opening night. What he actually wanted to say to people was, no, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. We're looking forward to that. Then he'll be leaving us next Saturday. But it was a pastor who had a reputation for getting tongue-tied in the pulpit. And sure enough, when he introduced me, what he said to a packed house was, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. He's leaving us next Saturday, and we're looking forward to that. <laughs> so I sincerely appreciate his healthy, kind, and to-the-point inflection. But as the folks who are at the conference this week know, there's no one who steps on the platform anywhere in America. Hey, more grateful to God than I do. Because I don't always have time to give my life story. But I born with an inherited speech defect, inherited from my dad's side of the family. That was so severe, I could not pronounce the word T-H-E, the. And therefore, medical doctors told me to give up all hope of ever being a public speaker. One day, seeing high school with my head between my hands, so no one could see I was crying. Because I had just been ridiculed what seemed like the 500th time I told God, if you help in this defect, I will always use my voice for you. And starting that week, I started with a control I had never had before. And that of the year speech therapy brought me to where I am today. But when you come from that kind of background, you don't take one opportunity for granted. It does not matter an audience of five or an audience of 50,000. Because if it were not for the, way the grace that God has done in my life, I could not be on this platform this morning. It's such a light and honor to have this time with you. But this morning, I would like to ask and answer the question, what are three essentials in your relationships with non-Christians? What are the three essentials in your relationship with non-Christians? And if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take them and turn them into one of the most exciting paragraphs in the entire Bible. It's found in that book called Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 4, I'd like to start reading at verse 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, may I encourage you to look when someone's near you or turn to page 985 in that Bible in front of you in the seat, page 985, and you'll be right there. But I want you to leave the one this morning, not just knowing what I said, but knowing we're in the Bible, God said it first. So when you have a Bible in front of you, turn to me to Colossians chapter 4. I'd like to start reading at the second verse. Colossians 4 and beginning at verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery for Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. A pastor who one time ministered in a remote area of Kentucky decided to give a series of messages on the subject of evangelism. And as he did, he reminded the people, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that evangelism is not done by something, it's done by someone. 
One man was so touched by his messages, he decided by the grace of God, he had to speak to a lost person about Christ. But since the area was remote, and the people were few and far between, the only ones he could think of were an old-timer's wife headed way back in the hills of Kentucky. It was one of those couples that many had spoken about, but few had ever spoken to. But sensing that that man needed Christ as badly as any man did, he stuck a New Testament in his pocket, a sandwich in his saddlebag, and he headed by horse back for the old-timer's cabin. When he got there, he found the man outside, cutting his supply of wood for the winter. And although the old-timer seemed delighted to see a new face, the believer had no idea how to begin a conversation about Christ, other than to plow right into it. And so he looked at the old-timer and he said, Sir, can you tell me, are you a Christian? And the old-timer said, No, I think you have the wrong cabin. Mr. and Mrs. Christian live about five miles further back in the mountains. And the believer said, No, what I mean is, are you saved? And the old-timer says, Saved? I'm not even lost. I've lived in these mountains for over 50 years. I know every cow path there is in the country. And the believer said, No, you still don't understand. What I am trying to find out is, are you ready for the judgment day? And the old-timer said, Well, when's it going to be? <laughs> and the believer was a little bit surprised by the question and said, Well, I don't know. I guess it could be today or it could be tomorrow. At which time the old-timer said, Well, please, son, don't breathe a word to my wife because she'll want to go both days. <laughs> if you have spent any time talking to unbelievers, you have run into all kinds of problems. There are, first of all, those who have no interest in spiritual things. And every time you step towards a subject, they step away. Then there's still other time you talk about spiritual things. And you are no more than five minutes into the conversation. And they look at you and they just hold everything. Don't talk to me about the religious stuff. My neighbor says he's a Christian. And the only hour he lives like is 11 to 12 on a Sunday morning. I figure if that's Christianity, I'm a whole lot better off the way I am. Then there's still other times you talk to someone about Christ. It becomes very obvious they're trying to make a fool out of you and treat you like you're an idiot. Say so you prove to them your tongue is sharper and your mind is faster. So just as they try to make a fool out of you, you try to make a fool out of them. Just as they ask you questions you cannot answer, you ask them questions they cannot answer. And you soon realize you have not had a discussion about Christ. You've had a full-fledged argument that demands some apologies. And it's only a matter of time, out of fear and frustration, discouragement, disgust, you throw your hands up in the air and you say, how in the world do you reach non-Christians? Well, I'm convinced in light of that personal problem, Paul the Apostle gives some pressing advice. Because after talking Colossians to the family, about how to relate to one another in the house. After talking to the workers about how to relate to one another on the job, he talks to all of us how to relate to people on the street. And what Paul is saying in this paragraph is when it comes to our relationship with non-Christians, there are three essentials on the part of every one of us. And the essential he begins with is one where we put the least emphasis, God puts the most. Because he gives three times as much space the first essential, as he does the other two. Because the first thing he says is, pray properly. And notice in verse 2 he says, continue earnestly in prayer, 
being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. What he's saying is, prayer ought to come from your life like water come on dripping faucet. Pray when you get up and pray an hour after you up. Pray before breakfast, pray after breakfast. Pray on your way to work, pray on your way home. But make it a habit to give yourself to prayer and do it in a spirit of thanksgiving. Whenever I hear the kind of emphasis on prayer, I'm always reminded of the boy who always wanted a baby brother. And his dad said to him, son, the only way to get anything is you've got to ask God for one. So if you want a baby brother, you've got to ask God for one. So morning, noon, and night, the boy prayed. He prayed his way to school, prayed on his way home, prayed before breakfast, prayed after breakfast, prayed before football practice, prayed after football practice. There was never one hour he did not pray. But after one week of praying, he still did not have his baby brother. So he said, this is obviously not doing any good. So after one week of praying, he stopped praying. Nine months later, his dad came in and said, son, your mother is going to the hospital. I have a feeling when she comes home, she's going to have God answer your prayers in her arms. And the mother went to the hospital and she came home. And sure enough, she did not have one baby brother in her arms. She had two uh, beautiful set of twins. And the father, wanting to drive a lesson home, looked at the son and said, no, son, aren't you glad you prayed the way you did? And the boy said, yeah, dad, but aren't you glad I stopped when I did? <laughs> what he's saying is, you ought to pray with the attitude, aren't you glad I stopped when he did? But then he's going to mention something you ought to pray for in relationship to non-Christians, and that is a door of opportunity. Notice he said, verse 3, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, which I am also in praise. That term, a door for the word, means a door of opportunity. Now, you must know, when Paul wrote this paragraph, he was writing it as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, handcuffed the Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And there's no doubt in my mind, Paul the Apostle had the chance to share Christ in prison. I promise you, if I was an unsaved Roman guard, the last thing I would want is to be chained to Paul the Apostle for 24 hours a day. I can see him looking and saying, look, since the two of us have a chance to do some bonding, may I ask you a question I've asked other people I've been chained to? At the same time, he does not want to be limited by the walls of prison. So think of himself, all this associates says, pray God will give a door of opportunity. As he says in verse 4, that I might make manifest as ought to speak. Paul wanted to make it obvious to the entire world that Christ's death on the cross was the only basis for right standing with God. And therefore he said, pray God will give a door of opportunity. And when someone comes to me and they say, we want so much to talk to sons about Christ, but the opportunity is never there. One of the first things I ask them is, have you asked God to give you that door of opportunity? Because nowhere in the Bible am I ever told to open a door for the gospel. I'm told to walk through the door that he has opened. And his job is open it. My job is to walk through it. And therefore he says, pray thou give a door of opportunity. As I told the folks this week, we have a son who's now 36-year-old living in New Jersey. But when he was about five years old, he decided if his dad was going to be an evangelist, then he would be one too. 
And he is a people person who has never met a stranger. And he is also highly intelligent. Now, I can always say that, and nobody can accuse me of bragging, because our son is adopted. Some time ago, some friends of ours said to us, your son is so intelligent, you can tell he's adopted. <laughs> and for that reason, he'd walk up to anyone anywhere and say, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? He'd walk to anyone anywhere and say, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? One time, my wife, he were in a hardware store. He runs up the counter and he says, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? The fellow was surprised how abruptly the question came up. He said, well, I go to church. I live good. I try to do what's right. And David looked at my wife and he said, he ain't going to make it. <laughs> at that point, my wife had a door of opportunity. <laughs> but I always remind people that a door of opportunity might come a lot faster than you ever thought it would. One time, my wife and he were visiting the neighborhood that's right behind us. And then David whispered to my wife, about five years old, is she a Christian? And my wife whispered back, Daddy and I don't know. We've been asking God to give us an opportunity to find out. David decided this was his day of opportunity. <laughs> and so he looked at her and he said, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? And she said, well, uh, 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 Jesus Christ. He said, Christ plus works or Christ alone. <laughs> and she looked at my dear wife and she said, would you please explain what it means to be born again? And Tamri led her to Jesus. He's saying, pray for a door opportunity. Always recognize that door might come a lot faster than you ever thought it would. But the first thing he says is, pray properly. But then he's going to mention the second essential. Because sometimes what hinders us in our relationships with non-Christians is the life we live around them. Nietzsche, who was famous years ago for proclaiming, God is dead, one time made the comment, show me first that you are redeemed, and I'll listen to your talk about your Redeemer. And one reason there are so many callous sinners is there are too many careless saints. So having said pray properly, he then says live properly. Notice what he says in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. And that word walk, walk is not referring to the way you walk to the breakfast table, but the way you walk from breakfast table to breakfast table, your entire manner of living. He says walk in wisdom. That word wisdom means common good sense. The kind God gives to those who ask him for it. I like to use the illustration of the man who lived at the top of a high mountain. And the only way to the top of that mountain was by means of horses and stagecoach. And the man had to have a driver for a stagecoach. And so he put an ad in the paper, and three different men applied. Well, the man decided, the only way to decide who should get the job is to have them drive the stagecoach to the top of the mountain. Well, at one point on the road, there was a tight spot with a wall of rock on the right and a cliff to the left. First man came along and he said, if I'm going to get the job, I've got to prove I can handle these horses close to the edge of that cliff. And he brought them one foot from the edge of that cliff. Second man came along and he said, if I'm going to get the job, I've got to prove I can do better than the first guy. So he brought the horses six inches from the edge of that cliff. Third man came along, he looked at that tight spot, and he said, job or no job? 
There's no way I'm taking those horses close to the edge of that cliff. That is just not wise. When they all competed, the man during the herring looked at the third man and said, it's my opinion, what I need most in a stagecoach driver is good common sense. And you've proven you have it. You have the job. He says, walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord. And then he said in verse 5, redeeming the time. That word redeeming the time means buying up the opportunity. Look at moments of your life as moments of opportunity to live around unsafe people in such a way they'll draw them close to the cross, not away from it. Just your life ought to always be a help to your message. It ought never be a hindrance. Walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord, buying up every opportunity to influence them for Christ. That your life ought to always push your message forward. It ought never push it backwards. Napoleon one time made the comment that the reason he defeated the Austrians is because they never learned the value of five minutes. He's saying, learn the value of five minutes. Walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord, buying up every opportunity to influence them for Christ. He's saying, live properly. As you can imagine, I told the folks this week, I do a lot of flying, and I found that airplanes are great opportunities to witness, and the rougher the flight, the better the opportunity. <laughs> But one time, I, coming back from Mississippi, on what was then Republic Airlines, the fellow next to me worked for Republic Airlines. I turned the conversation to spiritual things. I said, has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure going to heaven? He said, no, they haven't. I said, may I? He said, no. <laughs> I said, well, I appreciate your honesty. Had I shown it to you from the Bible, I shown you, first of all, you have to know you're a sinner. Bible says, all have sinned and balls short. And for the next 40 minutes, we talked about it. <laughs> After I said to them, you did not mind talking about it, didn't mean to show it to you why. He took a big sigh. He said, years ago, I met a Christian who was a hypocrite. So I threw out the whole thing. I said, I want to ask you something. You work for Republic Airlines, right? He said, that's right. I said, this is a Republic flight. That's right. He said, that's right. I said, you know why I took it? He said, no, why? I said, well, one reason is they have given me good service. In fact, they have given me such good service. If I met one of your employees who did not, I would not throw out the airlines. And I don't think you have any business throwing out Christ. Because you met one guy who didn't live the life. He said, that's a powerful thought. I promise you, I'll start to think seriously about Christ. Now, he had no right to throw out Christ because of one guy who did not live the life. But neither do we have any right to live around unchristians in such a way that drives them close to the cross instead of away from it. And he's saying, walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord, buying up every opportunity to influence them for Christ. He's saying, live properly. One time was a man who for years was antagonistic to Christ, and then he came to know him. And he attributed his conversion to a neighbor who was so timid, who was a Christian. And the neighbor was surprised. He said, I did not even talk to you about Christ the way I should have. And the convert said, no, you didn't. But you lived me to death. <laughs> I could refute their argument. I could upset their logic. I could not refute the way you lived.
he's saying live properly. But then he's already mentioned the second, third essential, because sometimes what hinders us in our relationship with non-Christians is the way we use our tongue. Socrates one time said to one of his pupils, I've got to teach you two sciences. The one is how to use your tongue, the other is how to hold it. As you're going to be effective for some believers, you have to know how to use your tongue, but you also have to know when to hold it. So having said, pray properly and live properly, he then says, speak properly. And look what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you all answer each one. That word grace means, let it have a graciousness, a pleasantness about it. One time there was a woman who went to see the doctor, and the doctor wanted to know if she had gone to see anyone else before coming to see him. And the woman said, no, but I did go to see my pharmacist. And he said, and what kind of idiotic advice did that guy give you? And she said, he told me to come see you. <laughs> now, we smile, but sometimes a speech is characterized that kind of terseness and frankness. He said, instead, let it have a pleasantness about it. Then he said in verse 6, let it be seasoned with salt. Now, I think the reason Paul thought that analogy is that close to Colossae, there was a salt lake. And salt, as it's used in the Bible, has a twofold purpose. On the one hand, it induces an appetite because it makes something tasty. On the other hand, it acts as a preservative and makes something wholesome. So what Paul is saying is, cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, by that he's not saying, you can't confront where you have to be confronted. You can't be direct where you have to be direct. If you know anything at all about the late heavyweight fighter Muhammad Ali, then you know he never ever struggled with his self-image. He was convinced it's hard to be humble when you're so great. And one time he's on a plane flight. As the plane was about to take off, the flight attendant said to him, please buckle your seatbelt. He looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she was so ticked off by his arrogance, she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane, buckle up. <laughs> Sometime you got to be direct. <laughs> what he's saying is, there's never a need to be harsh. There's never a need to be sarcastic. There's never a need to be rude. Instead, let your speech work like salt in a person's life. Let it give them an appetite for God, and they strike them as being wholesome. Speak properly. Cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. We have a saying today we use a lot, and you know so well. If I start it, you can finish it. All it says is, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. He say, no, they may not hurt you, but they may hurt the person to whom you're speaking and the cause you represent. Therefore, it's far wiser to choose what you say instead of saying what you choose. Maybe you speak for reveal. There's something in this book he completely misunderstands. 
Maybe his speech will reveal he's been turned off by the hypocrisy of another Christian. Maybe his speech will reveal he is so bitter against God because of something that's happened in his past. He's saying, it doesn't matter. Let your speech, like your life, work like salt in a person's life. Let it give them an appetite for being God and let it strike them as being wholesome. And notice his point is, this way you ought to speak all the time. Because he says in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Because you do not change the way you talk when unsafe people come around. Instead, the way you talk to people in general will be the way you talk to non-Christians in particular. So could I ask you, what kind of reputation does your tongue have? Does it strike them as being terse? Or does it strike them as being tender? He's saying, cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's saying, speak properly. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is in John 1, 14, where it says, Christ was full of grace and truth. And traveling for 45 years as an evangelist, I have found there are believers who have grace, but they have no truth. But I have agonized just as much over the Christians I have met who have truth, but they have no grace. And he's saying, cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's saying, speak properly. One time there was a pastor community, true story, who witnessed to his neighbors about spiritual things. But every time he did, neighbors responded in words that were so sarcastic and rude. A few months later, again, true story, the pastor's son became ill. What turned out to be a terminal disease. Several weeks later, that pastor's son died. Although it might sound hard to believe, a few weeks after the son died, the unbelieving neighbor walked in the pastor's home and they said, well, where's your God now? Pastor looked at them so kindly, so graciously, so gently responded, the same place he was when he lost his son. He's saying, cultivate the gift of pleasant host conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You see, Paul and Colossians have talked about responsibilities people have in the house. And they talked about responsibilities people have on the job. But now he's talking about responsibilities we have to anyone, anywhere. We need to pray properly, live properly, and speak properly. Someone one time made the comment, the obvious is never the obvious until someone says it ever so simply. And Paul makes what should be obvious, even more obvious, by saying it ever so simply. And he writes shit for non-Christians. He got to pray properly, got to live properly, he got to speak properly. I tell Christians, don't think that because I've been evangelist for 45 years, I know everything there is to know about evangelism. That could not be further from the truth. But I do know 
if you're going to impact New England for Christ, you got to pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If God were to ask any one of us, what are your three essentials in relationship with non-Christians? We would write about six volumes and say nothing. God takes six words, he says it all. Your relationship with non-Christians. Pray properly, live properly, and speak properly. What are the three essential relationships for non-Christians? They are pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If you're going to impact the lost, you got to do what? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If you're going to make a difference in New England, you got to do what? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If Pastor Rob were to ask you one week from the day, what are the three essential relationships for non-Christians? What would you tell him? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If Pastor Rob were to ask you two weeks from the day, what are the three essential relationships for non-Christians? What would you tell him? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If Pastor Rob were to ask you three weeks from the day, what are your three essential relationships for non-Christians? What would you tell him? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If you were to die right now and stand before God, he'd know. <laughs> but the point is, what are the three essential relationships for non-Christians? They are... Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. I beg you on behalf of the lost. I beg you on behalf of the Savior who died for them. I beg you on behalf of your own reward when you stand before the Savior. Pray properly, live properly, and speak properly. And you will make a difference in New England for the sake of eternity. Some years ago, was an evangelist who spoke in a crusade in the West. And many people were coming to Christ. A woman, attended, a woman attended with her two sons, who showed no interest in spiritual things. And so one day she said to them, I'd like to know why so many are coming to Christ, and my sons have no interest of any kind. And so he proceeded to ask her a few questions. He said, have you prayed that God will give you a chance to speak to them. She confessed, not only had she not done that, even a horrible attitude, only even God could not save them. And he said, well, have you tried to live and act and talk around them in such a way? Would commend the Savior to them. She confessed, not only had she not done that, but she harbored a very bitter attitude towards them because of things they had done to her. So God gave him the love to say to her, then could I suggest to you, the reason your sons are unsaved is probably because of you. That comment went through her ear down to her heart. She decided to do something about them. So she began to pray that God would give her a chance to speak to them. And she began to live and act in such a way that would demonstrate the Savior to them. One morning, she came downstairs again, true story. She noticed they were a bit more somber than usual, a bit more open than usual. And so she very kindly looked at them and said, I did not sleep that well last night, and I don't think I ever will, till I know that we will be together in heaven. Because that would mean more to me than anything else on earth. That comment went through their ear, down their heart. And several months later, 
both of them came to Jesus. Now, that's not to say where there were unsaved children, it's because their parents did not live for Christ. That is not true. But it is to say, our relationship with non-Christians, we must do what? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. What are the three essential relationships with non-Christians? They are pray properly, live properly, speak properly. Again, I beg you on behalf of the Savior. I beg you on behalf of the lost who have no idea who they're missing. Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. And you will make a forever difference in the lives of those who don't know the Savior. And all God's people ought to say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.